that there's instruction for us from God. We have to be willing to listen carefully and to put that into use in our lives. Uh, Not saying, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's not a broken, contrite spirit. That is a prideful, selfish spirit. I'll do what I want to do. And that's what we as Americans were taught as we grew up. Uh, You can do anything you want to do, be anything you want to be. Now, wait a minute. There's a God. And he tells us what we need to be and what we ought to be and what we need to do. And the carnal mind is enmity to that. We do not like to be told what to do. You ever notice that? Somebody tell you you ought to do this? There's an automatic reaction. You ain't going to tell me what to do. No. But if we are willing to be taught, teachable, willing to be humble and learn, then God says, I'll be near you. I'll be close to you. That's the kind of attitude I'm looking for. It's a hard one to achieve. We have to pray about that so that we tremble at his word. And then he says in verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the eternal delivers him out of them all. So we will not go through life without affliction. Just being human, being on this earth, Satan being around, our own human nature, uh, we're going to have many afflictions, many troubles, trials, difficulties, problems. They're just part of life. But God says he will deliver this, us out of them all. Now, what kind of a friend do you want? This is the kind of friendship he's offering us. If you do what I say, I'll be near you, I'll hear you, I'll watch you, I'll take care of you. I'll deliver you out of all your troubles. Now, I'd like to have a friend like that. I want to become a friend of a being like that, who is willing to do all those things. So, yeah, we've been talking a lot about why God called someone a friend in the Bible and how Christ put that limitation on it. He said, you've been servants, I'm offering you friendship, if you will do the things that I say. That's all it requires. That's all it requires. I say that's all. That's tough. <laughs> it's hard to do everything he says. And he, all, he boils it down for us where it's really, really quite simple. All you got to do is love me more than anything there is and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. See how simple that is? If you could do that, you wouldn't need the rest of this. So he boils it down real simple for us. Living up to it is an entirely different matter. But he's there. He's got our back. He's there to help us do it. You and I can't do it. So he's given us his spirit to help us achieve it. And we need to be going and calling on him to give us that kind of spirit day by day by day. 
just things we see, things we experience here in a little bitty group like this between each other and the way people can get twisted around against each other, all kinds of things that are just the product of a lack of humility and a broken spirit and a willingness to have the attitude toward each other that God has toward us. We're judgmental. We see problems, alleged problems, and we put people in pigeonholes and say, well, that person's like this, that person's like this. And if we're not careful, that's where they stay, in our mind. We don't allow them to change. We don't allow them to be different. We don't allow ourselves to think, well, maybe I'm assessing them a little too strongly. Maybe I'm being too critical or too hard or whatever. A humble and contrite mind does not stay hard and rigid and difficult. And that's what God is looking for us. And he says, if you are that way, I'll take care of you. You don't have a thing to worry about. So with that preamble, let's go into the scriptures that I had already down for today. Uh, over in chapter 35, and pick it up in verse 11. Now, this is going to be random uh, principles from various scriptures about uh, friends and how to react, uh, friend to friend and friend to enemy and whatever else in terms of relationships. So, uh, we'll go through a lot of different kinds of scriptures today. Verse 11 Here David is saying, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. In other words, they were saying that I was doing things that I hadn't done. I didn't even know about it. Uh, You ever been falsely accused where somebody said you did something or said something you didn't say or you didn't do? Happens all the time. Because people are active in their minds with their evil imaginations, and they're looking for fault, they're looking for anything negative that they can find, and that's their way of looking at things. Some people are a lot more that way than others. Some people don't do much of that, but some people, that's pretty much their whole viewpoint, their whole uh, view of life is finding fault with other people. And it's fairly easy to do. But you know, sometimes the fault isn't there. You're just imagining in your mind, because you see this and you see that, and you think that something is there that may not be there at all. Not at all. Just a product of your imagination. That happens a lot. It's happened a lot around here. I've done things that I didn't get to enjoy at all. I didn't even know I did them. I didn't do them. And then once in a while, somebody comes up with one, and I say, yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Once in a while. Not too often. But you know, I'm an expert on it. I pretty well know what I've done and what I haven't done. And I might remember what I've thought and what I haven't thought. And you are on you. But somebody else wants to be an expert on you. That's presumption. That's the sin of witchcraft. 
Presumption and witchcraft are the same thing. We need to be very, very careful. And here David is lamenting this situation. False witnesses rose up. They they said things that I didn't even know about. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. So they decided he had done this. He hadn't done it. But they spread it around. And everybody began to believe it. True or not, they began to believe it because they heard it here, they heard it there, and they heard it somewhere else. And if I heard it three or four places, it must be true. Not necessarily. Our own government is a good example. They pick out a lie, and they keep telling it, and keep telling it, and keep telling it until everybody believes it's true, and it's a lie from the very beginning, and they knew it. Masks are good for you. Masks keep you healthy. Masks keep other people healthy. No, masks cut down the amount of oxygen that you breathe in, and they cause health problems. Did Adam and Eve have a mask? I don't think so. But they tell you lies over and over and over again. And they want you to stay away from people. They want us divided. And that's what it's all about, is to divide so they can conquer. Have you noticed that if you get close to somebody now, they get up tight and move away? They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to acknowledge you're there. They want you at least six feet away. That's done on purpose to us, and we've been lied to. And it's there to divide us and destroy us and conquer us. Because we have no affiliation, and we don't want to be around people, and we want to stay apart from people. Divide and conquer is one of the oldest ploys on earth. Divide and conquer. That's why God says His church cannot be divided. We can't be enemies with each other. Well, David had it in his kingdom here, and he's, he's lamenting it. Verse 13, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned to my own bosom. He bowed his head and prayed. I behave myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourns for his mother. So, here were people who had made false accusations and spread them around and got the whole kingdom believing them, perhaps. But when they had trouble, he prayed for them. He fasted that they might be delivered from their trouble. Now, what an example there on how to handle accusation when it comes against you. Our automatic reaction is to defend ourselves and say, well, I didn't do that. And maybe there's a time for that. But for the most part, we're told if we're accused wrongly there in First Peter or Second Peter, wherever it is, first, I think, uh, 
or is it James? Maybe it's James I'm trying to say. He says there, if you suffer wrongfully and you take that patiently, then that's acceptable to God. If you did it and you admit it or accept it, then there's no reward for that. But if you did do it, I mean didn't do it, and you're patient about it, then that's acceptable. That's a that's an attitude God will uh, accept. And here it is in the Old Testament. David had God's Spirit, so he didn't rail against his enemies. But Christ told us in the New Testament to do good for the, to them that persecute us and uh, unrighteously accuse us. That we are to be kind. Uh, do good to them if we can, whatever. And that's what he's saying here. To treat them as if they were a friend or brother, and if they have trouble, if your own mother had died, you mourn for them in the way you would for your own mother. Now that gives us quite a bit to work on. But in my adversity they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me, <coughs> tear me, and cease not. There's a passage in Ezekiel, what is it, 33? Where he said, uh, Ezekiel says, Now they're, they're around the door against the wall talking about you, and you're living among briars and thorns, he said in Ezekiel 3 or 4. Uh, this would always be. And when Christ was here, every accusation that was made against him, every last one that was ever made against him from the time he was a baby till the time he died was a false accusation. And you never saw him reacting in a volatile way against it. And in fact, when the worst accusations came, and they hung him up. He didn't defend. He didn't utter a word. He just accepted it and went on his way of dying. And he is an example that we should follow in his steps. We should not, when we are accused, whether it be true or untrue, we should not let ourselves get upset about it. That's just our self righteousness and selfishness and defense mechanisms for the self to protect the self is what that is but it's right there I mean we're accused boy we want to defend ourselves we want to get angry we want to be upset we want to accuse them maybe in return or whatever we can't just accept it and say Okay, that's what they think. I'm not that way, or I didn't do that, but that's what they think, so I guess I better be kind to them. That's against your nature. Totally against your nature. But that's what God expects of us, because that's what Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, did when he was accused. And it was always falsely for him. So, there's an example. Let's go to chapter 41. Uh, 
David was having his troubles here. And he says in verse 9, Yes, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. They'd accused him of having an evil disease in verse 8, uh, whatever that was. And even those that he was close to, a best friend, close friends, lifted up their heel against him. Now, David and Jonathan were fast friends, as we saw last week. As close as you can get, probably, as human beings can, just as uh, Jesus and John were very, very close friends. It's very clear in the Scripture. <clears throat> it would be like Jonathan rising up against David, or David against Jonathan, or John against Jesus, or Jesus against John. That's what he's talking about here. Even his own familiar friend, one I trusted, raised up his heel against me. Now, God will never do that. He's the kind of friend that will never do that. But as human beings, no matter how close somebody is, there is always the danger there that they will get upset about something or you will offend them in some way and then they will attack you in some way. So we have to be very, very careful with each other. With God... We know he cannot be offended by what we do. Because he tells us not to be offended by anything and that we are not to offend anybody in any way. That's what he tells us. So, he's not offended. He's frustrated. But he is not going to turn against us. He will never turn against us. Whatever he does is for our best interest, always. Now, sometimes it's chastening. Sometimes punishments can be pretty nasty. Sometimes God allows things to happen to us so that we might learn from them, so that we might grow. His ultimate goal is that we be in His kingdom, and He never does anything evil to us because he's upset and angry and wants to hurt us. That's never his emotion. We get jealous and envious, and we want to hurt somebody because they hurt us. We want them to suffer because of what they did to us. So we ignore them, or talk down about them, or are nasty with them, or whatever. Because we want to get even. We're competitive. We're envious and jealous. And those are works of the flesh, not the Spirit of God. So anything he does or allows to happen or even allows Satan to do to us is for our own good. Witness Job. As horrible things happen to Job as can happen to a human being on this earth, short of death. Lost everything he had, lost all his kids, and then his health. Now, was God being evil and nasty to Job? No, 
No, Job had a hard lesson, a hard attitude, a hard understanding that he needed to come to. And it wasn't going to come easy. And God knew that as righteous as Job was, one of the three most righteous men in the Old Testament, Noah, Daniel, and Job, Scripture says. No, what God did to Job could not be classed as evil or hateful or mean from God to man. No, it was just that there was a very, very difficult lesson to learn, and God knew that's what it would take. Now, he could have slapped him on the hand gently, and Job wouldn't have learned what he needed to learn. So he sick the devil himself on him and let him do everything to him he could imagine except kill him. Now, there's somebody that had an evil attitude. Satan is evil, and his attitude is to hurt you and me and to kill us. And he has the leaders of this world in the upper echelons convinced that most of mankind needs to die. And they're working very difficult, very uh, assiduously on it today to get you and me killed. And 90% plus of the population of the earth killed. That's their plan. That's their purpose. That's what they're working out. That's why they're setting fires on the West Coast. 103 burning right now. Some of them apparently set from satellite beams. Some set by Antifa. They've caught some. And this is done purposely to cause conflict, to cause heartache, to cause sickness and death, and to cause division and hate. Being done on purpose, divide and conquer. That's evil. But God is going to allow these evil spirits and evil men to destroy over 90% of the people on the earth. Well over 90%, because he says there in Daniel that there will only be 100 million left. That's all, out of over 7.5 billion. That's a lot of death and destruction. But it's all for our good. Israel today will not do anything God says. The whole nation, all 12 tribes, will not do anything God says. The Gentile world will not do anything God says. He's going to send the church to tell them about Him. And that if they'd obey Him, they'd be blessed. And they will not do anything they're told. Nothing. The evil is so deeply entrenched that the only way God can get humanity's attention is to kill them all in a very violent, vicious, hungry, diseased way. And when they come up in the second resurrection, they'll say, is there anything other than this? How can this be improved? I don't want to go through that again. And most of mankind will be saved. All Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. So is God angry and mad and seeking revenge against mankind? No. He's going to let Satan... And man do to the population what Satan did to Job. He's going to let him do that. Except he'll let them take it one step forward, 
further and kill nearly everybody, which he didn't do with Job. And then people's eyes will open, their ears will open, and they'll see a peaceful, beautiful millennial kingdom before them, and they'll prefer that to what happened to them as lovers of the beast, worshipers of the beast. Because they will know how that turned out with a very, very difficult death. And God will save them. Wow. It's all done for man's good. Don't paint God as evil. God is a friend of the whole world. And he's going to save most of the world. There will not be many in the lake of fire. Because God is successful. And he will be successful. And he's not going to fail with many, except some who just absolutely are adamant in their rebellion. As Satan was and is, and as the demons are. So if there are some human beings who will not give up Satanism, they will go into a lake of fire because God will not have that in his kingdom. It will be all done and over and finished. So what's he going to do? He doesn't like the man that is evil, we read. So, he's going to make them listen and see and hear and have a contrite and meek spirit and a teachable one and then they will learn truth and they'll follow it and they'll be worth saving. That's his goal. That's his purpose. And he's working the exact same purpose in you and me. So, when we have trials, troubles, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, it's because God loves us. And He wants us to straighten up and be what we ought to be so He can save us. It's just like you with your kids. They must be disciplined. They must hurt so that they will obey. You don't like to hurt your kids. But you need to understand that hurt is necessary. If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't change the conduct or the attitude. And just paddling or just removing privileges enough to change conduct and make them comply is not enough. You have to stay at it until they're sweet and respectful and obedient and loving. As long as they're pulling away or still got a rebellious attitude, your job as a parent is not finished. Because that rebellion is still there and it will resurface over and over and over again. You've got to deal with it and change the attitude. If the attitude doesn't change, you haven't accomplished a thing except saved a couple cookies or the flower or the dog for a moment. But if the attitude hasn't changed, same old problem over and over. And God is going to punish you and me and this earth enough that our attitudes change. We become respectful and loving. 
I remember so many times I would spank my children and I would hear rebellion in their voice. Their cry had rebellion in it. And then, if I kept on, or started over, there comes a point where I don't hear rebellion anymore. I don't hear anger anymore. I hear, are you going to kill me? I hear fear, and I, I hear compliance. And then when I quit and pick them up and hold them, I feel love. But if you haven't finished the job and you pick them up and you want to give them a kiss on the cheek and they you ain't done. God chastens every son whom he loves to straighten them out and to get them compliant and humble and meek and obedient. And we have to do the same with our children as he does with us. We tend to spoil them. Well, I don't want to hurt them. I don't know. And we read about these stupid child psychologists, and we forget about the Proverbs back here that say, if you beat your child with a rod, he will not die. That's from God. Spoil, spare the rod and spoil the child. You know what you do with something that's spoiled? Sometimes I get it over there in that chicken thing. And it's spoiled, so I throw it out. Get rid of it. Now, you can't throw your kids away. So what do you do? You chasten them enough so that they aren't spoiled anymore. You know, they become experts from the time they're little bitty. They become experts on pushing your buttons and getting their way. They cry, they rebel, they pull away to get their way. Sometimes they may not even know what they want, but they want to let you know they're unhappy about what they have. And they'll cry, and they'll cry, and they'll cry. You know what my parents always told me? If you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. And if you kept crying, they gave me something to cry about. And then after I cried it out a little bit, they says, now you're pretending. Stop it. Quit crying. And if I didn't quit crying, they gave me something else to cry about. And this went on until I shut up. And I did the same thing with my kids. I didn't put up with it. Why let them get away with it? No. If they can't control themselves, what are you there for? You're there to teach them to control themselves. If they won't settle down, you're there to settle them down. That's your job. And if they don't settle down, you're not doing your job. Now, when we act up, God will allow certain things to happen. He'll chasten us. And when we straighten up, the pressure comes off, 
and peace comes. It's all about attitude. Everything is about attitude. If you got the right attitude, then you'll do things the right way. But if it's selfish, God just won't let us be spoiled. You know what he has to do with those that are spoiled? He has to throw them in the lake of fire. And he doesn't want that. He wants us all in his kingdom very desperately. Therefore, he wants us to be meek and sweet and compliant and obedient and loving and kind and gentle and all those things that are nice to be around. So, he does to us what is necessary to get us to be that way. And you're learning to be God by doing that with your children. Because we have to take on a world that's come out of the tribulation in the millennium, and we have to teach them love and respect and kindness and gentleness in the way of God. God simply will not live in an unpeaceful situation. God has to have peace. And he will not allow anything but peace in his kingdom. Now, you've got a little kingdom. How much peace you got? more kids and relatives and friends you got, the less peace you have. <laughs> and you have to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Satan is not peaceful. He causes trouble. He's spoiled, rotten, selfish. And he will get his way, one way or another. He's bound and determined. God won't give it to him. And there's going to come a time when he will not allow him to go to his throne and accuse us anymore. And he'll boot him down here and say, don't come back. I had one of my sons tell me one time, well, Dad, if you'd have kept on, you'd have had real trouble. We'd have rebelled. No, I wouldn't have had real trouble. They would have. Because had they rebelled, I mean, I'm talking 15, 16, 17 years old. I would have simply set their stuff out on the back porch and said, see you later when you grow up. I wouldn't have lived with it. Wouldn't have. And I proved that when they were younger. I'm not going to live with that. If you're going to be that way, you're going to hurt. And if you'll straighten up, the hurt will quit. Okay? We got a deal. And we, we exercise that deal over and over and over. <laughs> because human nature is what human nature is. No, God loves us, and everything he allows is for our good. Let's go on to uh, Psalm 88. Uh, verse 14. Lord, why cast you off? My soul, why hide you, or hide you, your face from me? Now, he loves us, and he loved David. He loved David very much, so much that he's already announced he'll be king over all Israel. And yet, here's David saying, why do you hide your face from me? And we as a church have been saying that now for how long? 
Why do you hide your face from us? When will you turn your face to us and bless us? Well, the Scriptures show when we straighten up is when He'll do it. He says, you'll return to me early. You'll straighten up. He says, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer your terrors, I am distracted. Your fierce wrath goes over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend have you put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. Now, David had his attitudes. David had his problems. And he had had problems from his youth up, obviously. And he says, it seems like I have nothing but trouble. You're God, and I'm supposed to have blessings and love and peace from you. And yet, here I've got all this trouble. And my friends and acquaintances even turn from me. And I suffer that as well. Was it because God hated David? Nope. It's because David was somewhat spoiled. We just led into this with my little talk. David was somewhat spoiled. He put himself first sometimes. And he had to learn over a long period and a tough time in life not to put himself first. He learned to put Jonathan ahead of himself, and he learned to put God ahead of himself. And when he learned those things, peace came at the end of his life. So God is just here for us to have peace. But we don't want peace. We say we do, but we don't want it at the expense of us having to bow down before or be humble before other human beings. We want peace and we want it our way. You change. I don't have to change. I'm okay. You're the problem. That's human nature. If you really wanted peace, you would humbly, meekly go to someone else and make peace, is what you would do. You say you want peace, but you're a liar. You're lying! If you maintain your attitude and your selfishness, and I'm right and you're wrong, you're lying. You don't want peace. You want peace on your terms and you don't care what happens to somebody else. That's the bottom line. You don't care enough for them to humble yourself and make peace even at your own expense. Even if it's hurtful to you. We're not willing. We're carnal. We're selfish. We're not willing to bend. It's the other person's problem. No, it's your problem if you're not willing to do what's necessary to fix it. That's whose problem it is. It's yours. David hopefully was learning that.
And I think David did learn that. Let's go to the Proverbs now. Chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. My son, if you be surety for your friend, if you shake hands with a stranger, you are snared with the words of your mouth. You are taken with the words of your own mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver yourself when you are come into the hand of your friend. Go humble yourself and make sure your friend. You know, sometimes we say things we shouldn't say. Sometimes we overreach with our words. We make promises that we're going to have difficulty keeping. We make a covenant, an agreement with a friend or a stranger. And then we have trouble living up to it, maybe, or getting it done, whatever it was the agreement was. And then there are hard feelings. That's what he's saying here. There are hard feelings because somebody didn't perform as well as they said they would or thought they would. That's just kind of human, you know. Sometimes we think we're going to do this and we do that. Didn't Paul say something like that? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. So he was still falling short. We all do. So if we make some kind of promise... Then we get snared by our own mouth because we haven't been able to live up to it. So what do you do in that case? Well, you humble yourself and you go and you make sure your friend. That's what I was just saying. This fit in perfectly with it. Here's the thing to do. Humble yourself. Don't be selfish. Don't claim you're right. Don't claim the other person's this or that. Humble yourself, truly humble, truly meek, not with a ridge of carnality. Say you're sorry. Apologize to me. I'm sorry. You know, that's about the best we can do sometimes. Haven't you seen your kids do that? Haven't you done it as a kid? Apologize to your brother. Apologize to your sister. Tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry. About the best they can do. No, it's got to be real. Are you sorry? Now say it lovingly and pleasantly. If you can't say it lovingly and pleasantly, I have a ping pong paddle here that will help you change your mind so you can say it lovingly and pleasantly. And when I'm done with this ping pong paddle, or whatever you use, and your little behind is red and blistered, and your attitude is different, then you'll say, I'm sorry, sweet brother. I didn't mean to do that to you. It's all about attitude. All about attitude. I'm sorry is a bad attitude. It's compliance is all it is. Meekness and humility have to be there with it, and it has to be genuine. If it's not genuine with your friends, with your neighbors, with your relatives, they know the difference. God knows the difference. How do you pray when your tail's in a crack to God? 
Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to be that way. Please forgive me. So we'll humble ourselves before God sometimes. And sometimes it takes us a while, doesn't it? You know you did wrong. But it was fun, and you're not really sorry. So you have to conjure up this sorrow. And God knows it's not sincere. He knows. So what you got to do is become truly sorrowful for having broken His instructions and commands and violated being a Christian in whatever form it was and go to Him and humbly and meekly ask for forgiveness of the sovereign of the universe and that you, He whom you crucified, had His body beaten and his blood spilled for you. And you're truly contrite that you did that to him with whatever it is that you thought or did. Then you're getting somewhere. Then he hears and listens. So that's what he's telling us here in human relations. Same with God. When you come into the hand of your friend, go humble yourself and make sure your friend. And don't give sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids. Get it done. Deliver yourself like a deer from the hunter from this kind of an attitude that you've had. All right, let's go to chapter 17. And here, verse 9. He that covers a transgression seeks love, but he that repeats a matter separates very friends. Now, God, in his whole demeanor, his whole attitude, is to cover sin. He sent his only son to shed all his blood that all sin that is ever committed might be covered by that blood. His object is to cause every sin that ever happened to be covered. Now we say, well, you don't want to sweep it under the carpet. It's better out here in the middle of the floor. Really? So you can spread it around to everybody? What do you do? Take your broom and shuffle it around real fast so it spreads? No, you don't, you don't sweep it on, under the carpet. You clean it up. You fix it under the blood of the Lamb. And if God is forgiving of our sins, how much should we be forgiven or forgiving of each other's transgressions and sins? You know, you might see me do something or I might see you do something, and then that's in my memory is what you did. And as a human being, you know what? That's hard to get rid of, isn't it? Just hard to get rid of. I can remember things I saw 50, 60 years ago that weren't good. If I want to stop and think about it, I can remember stuff like that. You think you can't? Been married 50 years? Get in an argument. See what you can remember. <laughs> you got an elephant memory. 
Now, God has the capacity to forgive it and remove it. He has a better mind and a better forgettery than we do. But here is the principle of God. He that covers a transgression seeks love. So it shows if you, if, if you hear of something or you see something and you try to find a way to cover it so that it does not become known, you're seeking love. If you repeat it, you separate close friends. It's dangerous. It hurts. It destroys if you repeat something. Wouldn't it be better, instead of repeating it to someone else and spreading it around like David's friends did, to go in and pray for that person? To talk to God about it? I know, you're just bound to jump. You've got to talk to somebody about this. I saw it. I saw it. It happened. i got to go tell somebody. And you do. Or maybe you don't even get that excited. Maybe it just runs out of you. Anything you hear, it just runs out to whoever you see next. But that doesn't make it any less hurtful, does it? It can destroy chief friends. This is a real big, important matter here. If you seek to cover whatever happens so that it doesn't become bigger and bigger, you're not helping the person continue it. You're going to God and telling someone about it and asking Him to help them overcome it. That doesn't divide friends. doesn't divide the congregation. It helps draw unity because you're going to God about a person who maybe have created a problem and you're asking him to help them fix it, to repent of it. Now that's good. That's love. That's help. But telling it to somebody else creates problems. Just creates problems. Why do we do it? Because we're selfish and we're carnal. Maybe we just like to be in the know. If we know something, we want to spread it around so we look like an expert or an official or important. Because we know, so we'll tell. We're not seeking love. We're seeking what? Hate. We're seeking hate when we repeat things that are bad about somebody or what somebody has done. If you're not seeking love, you're seeking hate. Because it creates hate. It separates friends. That separates very friends. Let's go back to chapter 16, verse 27. Oh, I'm in 15. That won't work. An ungodly man digs up evil. If you dig up evil, you repeat evil. You see evil in people. Your imagination drums up evil. You are an ungodly man. Not godly. In our mind, we think of ourselves as godly. But God says, 
If you dig up evil, you are ungodly. God does not do that. It's not how he operates. Not the way he thinks. If you think that way, you are ungodly. Let's just face the truth here. And his lips, in his lips there is as a burning fire. What does fire do? It burns stuff up. It destroys wood. And it's gone. It becomes ashes. Worthless. No energy, no power left in it. A presumptuous man sows strife, and a whisperer separates chief friends. As close as two friends might be, if somebody starts whispering to one about the other, sooner or later he's going to separate them as friends. He has done an ungodly, dastardly thing to separate friends with whispering negative things about one or the other. That is satanic. You think you're a godly man and you're doing satanic things? No. Why does God tell us in Philippians 4, 8 to concentrate on the good and the righteous and the wholesome and the pure and all those things that he mentions there? Because that's what God does. He doesn't think on the evil. He tries his best to fix it. So if we see evil, who do we go to? We go to the great fixer. We don't go to the destroyer and destroy friendships and make people distrust and be malicious toward or not like or whisper about somebody else. I don't know how many times we have to go at this from how many angles before we begin to get the idea the gossip and whispering and telling evil and accusing people of evil or being evil or having bad attitudes is so bad and so wrong and so ungodly. And if we do it, they're not the ungodly one. We are. And separating chief friends is about as ungodly as you can get. Satan and God were chief friends at one time. Chief friends. Very close. Satan was around the throne of God, and it was all peaceful and love and gentleness and harmony until he got a little vain and began to think more highly of himself than he ought to think and thought less of God and less of the angels and became an adversary. And if we repeat things or imagine things in our own minds, we are following our father, the devil. That's what Christ said. If you think this, you do that, you're of your father, the devil. You think you're serving God? That's what he told the Pharisees. You think you're serving God. You don't have a clue. You're serving the devil because of what they were doing to him and others. That's probably enough to think about. Let's stop right there.